Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guests today are Arthur Levine, who is president of the Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship Foundation, Juan Carlos Reyes, who is executive assistant to the president at Teachers College, and Laura Scheiber, a doctoral student in comparative and international education at Teachers College at Columbia University. Today we will discuss education and opportunities in a changing neighborhood and the book Unequal Fortunes, Snapshots from the South Bronx. Arthur, Juan Carlos, Laura, welcome. The topic that we're discussing today, of course, is education, but it's also education in relation specifically to what has been happening in a particular area of New York that um, you, Arthur, started with the, the project of the book, and of course, uh, Laura, you worked with him on the book, and uh, Juan Carlos, uh, as I understand it, that is you, the neighborhood where you grew up. So perhaps, Arthur, would you start telling us about the idea and, and how that was born and why that was important? I grew up in... Um a neighborhood in the South Bronx, and I left to go to college. And in leaving, I went to many, many places after college around the country, and none ever seemed like home more than the old neighborhood. When I lived there, the neighborhood was predominantly white. People were from European backgrounds, and it was a working-class neighborhood. Most of the parents had never finished high school. Um, it was a neighborhood in which families were largely intact to parents. It was a neighborhood in which education was touted as the future for the children. It was a neighborhood in which income was below the national average. Um, it was also a neighborhood in which um, opportunity was extraordinary and the American dream thrived. When I came back, I wanted to visit the old neighborhood again and see what it was like. And the neighborhood had changed dramatically. The people who live there now didn't come from Eastern Europe. They came from Latin America, huge Dominican population. The average income had actually fallen Significantly, it was now the poorest congressional district in the United States. It was a place in which educational attainment was at a lower level relative to the American population than when I lived there. It was also a place in which the things that should be on the positive side of the neighborhood were going down, and the things that were on the negative side should be going up. Violence was on the rise. Um, out-of-woodlock births were on the rise. Um, drug dealing was on the rise. And things like income and other features were on the decline. It was a neighborhood in which much had changed, but probably the biggest change in the entire neighborhood wasn't who lived there. It was the loss of the American dream for children, the lack of opportunity, the lack of a future, now, the Bronx and the South Bronx are both part of New York City, for those of our listeners who have not heard of the Bronx or are not familiar with the Bronx before. 
why would you say is that this had happened? Is it something specific to that part of the city? And what do you think are the reasons behind that? Laura Juan Carlos? Um, so the question is why things have changed from when Arthur grew up in the 1960s in that same neighborhood and why they changed to the, uh, yes. what he just described right now. Is that the yes, question? Laura. Sorry. Why is know. this neighborhood so different from the thriving neighborhood okay. that it was when Arthur grew up there? Well, there's a whole bunch of things that happened between when Arthur left in the late 1960s and when he returned in 1994. A whole bunch of things changed, not just in the neighborhood, but in the United States overall. Specific to the neighborhood, beginning in the 1960s, there was white flight, which meant that as uh, African Americans and Puerto Ricans moved into the neighborhood, whites moved out. And with that, the businesses in the neighborhood also declined, and the financial situation in the neighborhood further declined when banks also left, and there was redlining by the banks. This then, also in the 1970s, you had a recession that did not help the situation. You had the famous burning of the Bronx, where in the 1970s, there were on average 33 fires a night in the South Bronx, and Basically, the Bronx just fell apart, and the city, they didn't know how to repair this borough, particularly the South Bronx, and they had some programs like something called Plan Shrinkage, which the idea was that if you take away city services, you'll make the living situation so bad in the Bronx that people will be forced to leave. So it was. So a lot of things happened specific to the neighborhood where, where Arthur grew up after he left. That the, the neighborhood just deteriorated horribly. There was also a crack at, at, uh, epidemic, um, and and th- after that, there was a resurrection of the Bronx. There were some grassroots efforts that tried to bring it back. There were millions of dollars that were put in. Uh, that, that were from the city and from the federal level to try to restore the housing situation in the Bronx because 30,000 buildings had been burnt or abandoned between 1970 and 1980. So there was a resurrection, but it's still not, by the 1990s, when Arthur returned, it still was not the same Bronx neighborhood that he knew in the 1960s. And in addition to that, like I said, there were some uh, societal changes as well. We switched from an, an informational society, from an industrial society to an informational society, which means that education was more, in, uh, more important in terms of social mobility compared to in the past. Um, I don't know if there's other things you want to add, Arthur, that talks about the, the changing society. You did a great job. Juan Carlos, would you add anything? Um, all, all I will say would be that... Um, for in in uh, a big difference in growing up from when Arthur grew up to when I grew up is that um what was the norm to Arthur which was um you know going to school and um the idea of going to college was just pretty stable it was the completely opposite in my neighborhood I could probably count with one hand 
the amount my the friends that I actually made it at college. Most of my friends and the people that I grew up with um ended up in more geared more towards a negative path and you know um that negative path was um more the norms because of the situations that we were forced to live in. In a way our future was already selected for us just based on the zip code that we were born in. Um our resources was were chosen for us and we weren't given an equal opportunity to um succeed the way that um maybe Arthur was Ar- the way that Arthur had when he was growing up or the way that other neighborhoods um not far from us. That's it. If I can just add to what Juan Carlos said, that um, something to keep in mind is that it, in the 1990s when Juan Carlos was growing up in the neighborhood and when Arthur returned, to build off of what Juan Carlos was saying, we're talking about, an, for example, an education graduation, uh, high school graduation rate of 50%, which compared to 87% of the national average. We're talking about um, a neighborhood where you had about 46, or about half half of the families in the neighborhood were headed by a single-parent household. We're talking about a neighborhood where one-third of families were living below the poverty line. Um, and we're talking, when he's talking about not having the same opportunities, what we're talking about here are social institutions that worked when Arthur grew up in the neighborhood in the 1960s, and we're now working against kids growing up in that same neighborhood today. So we're talking about unequal educational opportunities. Schools would have $10,000 less per child in a neighborhood compared to suburban neighborhood schools. Um, We're talking about uh, the police and the judicial systems that were supposed to protect kids. In fact, we're setting them on a track that was... uh, sending them to, to prisons, uh, intimidating them. I, Juan Carlos, you talk about a, um, what it was like to be stopped by the cops on a daily basis just for walking to school. Um, we're talking about access to health systems that were, are not adequate. So this is what, we're talk- what Juan Carlos is talking about when he's saying not the same opportunities. Let's go back for a second, perhaps in a if different you would. Time period. Let's just make a parenthesis, explain to our audience what we're talking about in terms of the, the comparisons that we're referring to. And that is to say that we're looking at a neighborhood in the South Bronx where Arthur grew up and he then moved away and made his life and became a successful career man in academia. And the same neighborhood... 20 years later where Juan Carlos grew up and the contrasting ways in which the neighborhood has changed. And Laura, you and Arthur collaborated in writing a book about the neighborhood, which is the title I mentioned earlier, Unequal Fortunes, Snapshots from the South Bronx. Am I painting the picture accurately? Right Do you bottom. have any statistics yeah, exactly. that you might be able to share with us in terms of, say, the size of the neighborhood back in Arthur's youth and the size of the neighborhood now and the demographic profile of the neighborhood at those two times? In other words, who was living? Can, can you paint a picture for us of what the neighborhood was like using some objective criteria? The size of the neighborhood, the geographic parameters of the neighborhood didn't change. We're still talking about the same physical area. What did change in the area 
was that the building across the street from my apartment was rubble when I came back. One could see deterioration in the physical plant all along. I walked through the schoolyard where I'd gone to school. And by the way, what I should say about that is Laura was talking about the poor quality of the institutions. Uh, that school was closed for poor academic performance by the New York City public schools. What changed also is the size of the population shrunk in my old neighborhood. And walking around the schoolyard, I remember coming back for a first visit and walked around the schoolyard. And in the schoolyard where I played, what I found was broken glass, some used condoms. But most of all, I found enough crack vials to fill a baggie. The neighborhood had lost those individuals who served as role models. We had the occasional doctor in the neighborhood. We had teachers. We had a lawyer in the neighborhood. And kids could see what you could become if indeed you went beyond, if you completed high school and went to college. What changed now is that the role models were increasingly gang leaders and drug dealers. The others had left as part of the white flight that Laura described. And the end result is those are people who don't need education to do the jobs they did. They made the best salaries. And consequently, those were the people to be modeled after. And there was no educational requirement to do that. So just a couple of numbers um, to compare the neighborhood in the 1960s compared to today, or in the 1990s and uh, into uh, 2000. In the 1960s, when Arthur was growing up in the neighborhood, it was a predominantly white neighborhood. It was 98% white, 2% what you call, I guess, non-white or um, black or Hispanic or Latino. And uh, it was a working-class neighborhood so that it was the, the annual income of families was below the national average income. And as Arthur said before, the, the educational attainment of adults in the neighborhood for example, for high school, it was a 40% high school graduation rates, but that actually was only 1% lower than the national average uh, uh, graduation rates of the country. And the other thing that I would say that was a really big change in the neighborhood is that the majority of families at that time were two-parent households, and it was, uh, and today, I think I mentioned before that, that that contrasts drastically with today where you have 46% of the families growing up in a single-parent household. Um, so, and in terms of the size of the neighborhood, I don't have the exact numbers of how many people were living there in the 1960s compared to today, but what we are talking about is about a four-block radius um, of a, a New York City neighborhood. So a four-block radius that back in the 1980s was 98% so, white and today is, what would you say is the racial ethnic breakdown? So compared to the 1960s, like I said, that was 98% white, it's actually been inverted. It's exactly inverted where today you have 98% are non-white and 2% are white. And seven out of ten people in the neighborhood today speak Spanish. So, you, yeah, you have quite inverted statistics. You have a very different demographic. What is that? You said the graduation the rate in the 1960s was 
40%, which is very close to the national average. What is the graduation rate today? Uh, today, the graduation rate is 50%, but that's compared to 87% of the national average high school graduation rate. So it's dropped significantly compared to our, our nation's graduation rate. And that 41% were our parents, not the kids living in the neighborhood when I did. That's right. So, yeah, we're talking about adults 25 or older. I'm sorry, so that would, be would you clarify that? The 41%, uh, what is that? Adults over the age of 25. That had graduated. So those would be the parents, not the children. So 41% of the adults 25 and older had graduated from high school. And so the thought is that the children had a higher or a lower graduation rate? A higher graduation rate. Dramatically higher. The vast majority. um, It was... 80-odd percent were finishing high school. You mentioned that you had seen a lot of uh, crack vials, I think you said. And I realize it might be difficult to quantify that for comparative purposes in terms of number of crack vials in the 60s, but is there any way that you can describe what the neighborhood was like in terms of drug issues back in your youth, Arthur? Drugs were rare during my youth, and it didn't mean that there was the occasional kid who overdosed and died. We had those. I can think of two or three kids I knew in the neighborhood who overdosed. But drugs weren't a fact of life. If we wanted drugs, I have no idea where you would have gotten them when I was growing up. And the world Juan Carlos lives in is is profoundly different today in terms of the degree to which drugs are available and how they're sold. Juan, can you describe that world? Yes. Um, so just to draw a picture, so if you if you picture about um, a mile up, and so I'm, I'm talking about Tremont Avenue all the way up to Fordham Avenue and Crescent. Every single corner block while I was growing up was a known drug spot, meaning that at any moment if I wanted to get um, weed, for example, I know exactly where to go. Beyond that, also, every sim- most corners um, were also um, crack spots, meaning that there was constant um, crack addicts um, in the neighborhood, which I saw um, buying from drug dealers. It was just an everyday norm. To me, um, looking at a, at a crack there was nothing different from looking at someone buy a sandwich at the store so you can see the comparison. It was just that normal. Um, I'm talking about the the 90s and even late, um, early 2000s as I was growing up. It was just a huge epidemic and it was the norm in the neighborhood. It was how most, not I wouldn't want to say successful, but the people with money in the neighborhood, that's what so they the were doing. the neighborhood changed. Sorry, go ahead, Laura. Oh, I was just going to add that when, you know, when talking to Juan Carlos and, and his friends who grew up in the neighborhood, this is what they described when we first met them, is the, their mentors or the people that they looked up to, the people um, that served as role models. And they had girls, they had money, and they had respect. I don't know if that's, if that's good. Would you agree with that, Juan Carlos? That that's, I mean, that's certainly, that was striking to us. Would you agree that that was sort of kind of as the role models when you were younger growing up? Well, I, I would say at the time, it's like, um, 
I don't know if I would necessarily describe it as a role model today, but it's definitely the people that I looked up to growing up because they had everything that I would want. You know, they had they had money, they had cars, they had um they had a reputation and everyone just seemed to love them. So yeah, it's definitely people that I looked up to when I was um if I understand correctly then to to close the paint the picture part of our discussion back when Arthur grew up in the 60s it was a predominantly white 98% white neighborhood whereas today it is the complete opposite it is 98% non hispanic white the graduation rate initially was a very high graduation rate and now we're looking at a relatively low graduation rate compared to the national average it was a relatively thriving though working class neighborhood and although now it's a much smaller if i heard correctly it has shrunken it is a much more impoverished neighborhood Anything you'd like to add? Yes. Sounds pretty clear. Yeah. And I don't know, Juan Carlos, I think then what would be really helpful is to describe what this world was like to grow up in. What was it like to go to school in this environment? What school opportunities did you have? Um, what was kind of your daily life like that made it difficult to, to do well in school and why those to to, get, to give some indication of why those statistics of fifty percent fail out. Okay. All right. So I think um in in order to understand my um everyday social life, there's a there's a couple aspects that I need to touch upon. Um, the first we already touched upon, which was the people that I kind of looked up to when I was growing up, right? So as, as I said earlier, it was um those individuals in power and um headed towards a very um that that led a very negative life. But besides that, um, if you take a look at my authority, the authority figures in my life, um, example, um, cops or security guards at school, the relationships that I had growing up um, with these authority figures were very negative. Um, rather than seeing um, cops as friends and as protectors, I saw them, I, I kind of feared them and I saw them more as the enemy. Why? I'll give you an example. Um, going to, to school every morning when I used to take the four train, I can remember a very specific officer who would stop me every day when I was using my student metro card simply because he could and he, um, he, he just, um, patted me down every morning. Just, um, and, and so that was sort of a very, a, a negative, um, relationship that, that I had with authority. So when I was going to um, Roosevelt High School or Martin Luther King High School, I had to make extremely long lines to get into school. Um, sometimes these lines wrapped around blocks. And to go get into my um, to the building of the school, I had to walk through metal detectors. Sometimes as a kid, you tend to forget that you have a gun wrapper in your pocket, God forbid. And when you do that, the um, the alarm detector goes off. So what happens then is that the security guard then pats you down with a separate handheld detector. And they compl- and not only does, do you feel at that moment like you're walking into a courtroom or a prison rather than school, but the attitude that the um, that the office that the security guard officers had was just one of it was just very diminishing and disrespectful. 
beyond that, when I got to a, a classroom at Roosevelt, I used to tend to walk into very overcrowded classrooms. I'm talking about the smallest classrooms where at least 35 kids inside. Um, the teachers were just so overwhelmed that they didn't care about teaching. They just worried about um, getting the, the day over, and they were happier with you not showing up to class than you showing up to class because you made their workload lighter. Um, their purpose was not to educate, just pretty much to, to survive in that environment. Finally, um, now that I've described the school environment, I, I, I chose to, like many other of my peers at the time, I chose to not go to school and I chose to party and hang out because it was just easier than to go than to deal with the um bureaucracy of school and with all the um the the negativity and the disrespectful the dis disrespecting attitude from the authority who was supposed to protect and educate me um I would leave school on a regular basis and it was it was never an issue with the security guards they were just happy that I was walking out in the middle of the day so to make it um to to summarize all this up it was um growing up the authority was the authority figures and the role models who were the people that were supposed to be authority figures and role models i saw them as enemies rather than friends and the those negative leaders in the neighborhood sort of say the drug dealer or the gang leader or the or those popular um figures i saw them more as idols i saw them more as you know that's that's who i want to be for a while, up until I had a peak peak change in my life, which we'll talk about later. The one thing that's most vivid to me is that middle school proms in poor neighborhoods, and certainly in my old neighborhood, tend to be like they're as grand as the high school or college prom. And the reason is, for most kids, this is the last prom they're going to have. They're not going to finish high school. And I remember going to one of them, and across the room was a large banner. And the banner said, no dream, too small. <laughs> the notion behind it, that you're telling, I was, when I grew up, I was told, you can be anything you want to be. No dream is too large. Here are kids who are being told, no matter how small your expectations and dreams are, that's good. And, it, it's a kind of school system that prepares kids to live their lives in poverty rather than breaking out. It's a school system that has so little in the way of expectations for kids and a disregard for them and their possibilities, certainly for their families. Um, so I, I just, if I could add to that one point that Arthur is making right now because it brings me back to junior high school. And I remember when we were prepping for our um, graduation and we were doing all the preparatives for the junior high school prom, et cetera. I remember my, um, I remember it vividly like yesterday. This is over 10 years ago. And I remember the vice principal said, we try to make this experience very pleasant. We try to make this experience very memorable because we know that for some of you, this will be your only chance at a prom. To the three of you describe the neighborhood throughout time, one of the things that comes to my mind is the parents, and I think some of our audience who are parents are wondering the same thing, where are the parents in all this, what role did they play, say Arthur in your youth, 
and what role are they playing in the neighborhood now and for you, Juan Carlos, in your youth? In my youth, um, it was largely two-parent families. Usually, not always, there was a mom at home. It was also the kind of neighborhood which had longevity so that the notion of it takes a village um, really operated in my old neighborhood. If you did anything wrong, your parents knew about it before you got home. They were also parents because there were teachers in the neighborhood. They were also parents who were acquainted with the teachers. And because they spoke English, they could ask questions. They could talk to the teacher. They were home to go to school conferences. They knew the advantage of education because they'd seen it in other people. So that um, that was the kind of world I grew up in, which, again, is different than uh, Juan Carlos's world. In my world, um, there's, I guess if, if I think about my close circle, it's a different mix. So let's, uh, before I get in, in, in the larger picture, I think for the most part, we, did, we do have single households in the neighborhood. But I, I'm going to talk a little bit about the close picture and about the three, um, the three people that we talk about in this book, which is Carlos, um, Leo, and myself. So and and we each had um our parents each had issues communicating in because of different reasons. So I'll start off with um Carlos. Carlos um is has a um full household mom and dad are at home. But and dad is just an awesome exemplifying figure, kind of like a father figure figure to all of us, um, not just me, but also Leo and a lot of Carlos' friends. Carlos' father always has um, an advice or a lecture. He's, we, we tend to joke around and call him, call him the lecturer because he's always trying to tell us a story and always trying to teach us a moral. But Carlos' father also comes from Dominican Republic and doesn't speak English very well. Um, while while Carlos was in high school, like many of us, Carlos used to cut a lot of classes because Carlos went to Park West High School, which was another um, very violent and um, low-performing school. And by the time that um, Carlos' father found out that Carlos was cutting, Carlos was pretty much in deep trouble looking at almost not graduating. Um, Carlos would receive phone calls at home, but it was an automatic machine which spoke English. So what happens if Carlos receives, uh, if Carlos' father receives an English-speaking machine, he's going to hand the hand phone over to Carlos, and Carlos is going to pick it up and say, oh, it's nothing, it's just a telemarketer or make up any excuse that comes to mind. So it's hard for him to figure out what's going on in Carlos' life as much as he wanted to be involved. Beyond that, he also worked very, um, he worked on um, very late hours, so it was it was hard for him to get involved in his everyday life. So by the time that he figured out that Carlos was um, messing up, it was it was just a bit too late. So now I'll move on to uh, um, my scenario. I grew up with my mother, and I grew up with my stepfather, who I see as my father figure. They were both, um, you know, very hardworking, gave me um, great examples, yet... I, uh, hanging out in the in the neighborhood, I, I it was just I was just bound to to choose a um the wrong path. I um 
I experimented with with that negative path for for say for a while, and I just I I, I tended to forget the morals that my mom and dad taught me, and that that hurt me for a while. My, um, my mom and my dad um always lectured me, especially my father. He was a he was a very moral 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 gentleman, and he he would he he told me that what I was doing was wrong. I just I just refused to listen. As far as school is concerned, I'm gonna hit the same issue that I hit with Carlos. As as much as my mom and my dad will want to be involved, they have to support a household on very low incomes. They were working tremendous amount of hours, and a lot of times, you know, my mom did understand a little bit more English than Carlos' father. But a lot of times she wasn't there to receive that automatic phone call, which was set. So by the time, again, the same issue, by the time that they got the news that I was cutting school, I was already deep into trouble. I already had, I remember the number, I had 400 cuttings by the time my mom figured out that something was wrong. And it was because of the way that school was communicating to them. It had not adapted to the language change. and I had not adapted to the lifestyle that we lived. And... Leo's story, um, again, the same, the same issue, except that here it's a bit more complicated than me and Carlos because we have one single parent household. His, Leo's mother would work a tremendous amount of hours. So this, the way that the schedule worked with was when Leo and, and his brothers, brother and sister was home, his mom tended not to be home. She tended to be working. So, the, the the schedule sort of conflicted there, and I, I would say also the the language barrier will also always remain the same. But in this case, what made it specifically hard for his mom to get involved in is because is that they didn't really have the time to communicate. As great as a mother as as she was, and she tried everything in her power to make things work, the communication was just not there because she had to um, put food on the table for her kids. That's if, if I can just add to what Juan Carlos talked about, for example, with Leo's mom, when he's saying she worked a tremendous amount of hours, and when we're talking about single-parent households, Leo's, ma- or Leo's family is a perfect example. She came to the United States with the hope of having a better life, a better future for her kids than what she had. She came from a very poor background, and she came to the U.S. with the desire to work as hard as she needed to to provide a better life for her kids. But because she didn't have educational credentials in the U.S. and limited English skills, she had to take whatever job was available, which typically meant a minimum wage job. So now, automatically, her family is now living below the poverty line because if you work full-time as a single parent, you will be living below the poverty line when we did this study in the 1990s and 2000. Um, and and you're, you need to take whatever job you can get so your family can eat. So she would work. She would get up at 11 o'clock and get ready for work. Um, and she had to leave by 11.30. And the jobs that she could get were factory jobs out in New Jersey. So that's a two-hour commute. She'd get there about 1.30, start work at 2, work for 10 hours, 
and then take a two-hour ride back to her home in the Bronx. So this means she's getting home at about 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. Um, and so when Juan Carlos was saying that she wasn't home during working hours, she desperately wanted to be involved in her children's life. She wanted to go to school and talk to teachers. But because of her limited job opportunities, she didn't have a choice. And so there were periods of time where she um, she wouldn't see her kids except on the weekend. And people often ask, well, what about if she... She knew that if she were to learn English, she might have more opportunities. But the problem... And she actually tried doing some English courses in local um, community, uh, community centers. But the problem is that she was only getting three or four hours of sleep at night. And that's just not going to work when you're trying to support your family on your own. So I, um, I just wanted to fill in a little bit of the picture that Juan Carlos described very well. The three names that were mentioned, Juan Carlos, Carlos, and Leo, were three boys living in the neighborhood I grew up in now. Um, Carlos lived in the same apartment that I did. His bedroom was my bedroom. And we, we spent ten years with those boys. They kept diaries for us. Laura... Laura basically lived with them for 10 years, uh, got to know them, got to know their families. So we saw this situation up close. The other factor that's probably worth noting is that the high school graduation rate probably conceals more than it reveals. The fact of the matter is many of the parents we met hadn't gone to school beyond fourth grade. The result is that schools were alien places they really didn't understand, didn't know what questions to ask, and felt cowed by. And if I can add to what Arthur was saying, there were several times that I did go to school um, with some of the parents um, for different throughout the ten years that um, we we were with them. And another thing that I definitely noticed, particularly with Leo's mom, the few times that she was able to go to school, is the relationship between the teachers and her were not always, uh, they weren't very comfortable always. There was a, there was a sense of de- degradation that, that Leo's mom didn't feel comfortable talking to the teachers. She saw them as authority figures and wanted to do whatever was best for her son, and she wanted to respect the teachers, but often she felt like the teachers looked at her as a bad parent, and this made her horribly uncomfortable. This did not encourage a positive relationship between the parent and teacher, which is so important. I, I was just going to ask, Juan, I know Juan Carlos's mom, and feel free to jump in, Juan Carlos, but it mm-hmm. sounded like your mom had a good, a better experience um, with the teachers that you in your schools. Well, well... Um, if I with my with my mother, it was a, it it was a different struggle because they rather than the struggle being between the teacher and um and the parent the way that Leo's case was, he in in my case and many times was um me and my mother, and it's because my mother in my mother said the teacher was always right and that's and that's positive to a certain extent she saw the teachers as my as my parents she she believed that from 9 to 5 they were my parents and i had to listen what my mother didn't understand was what i was dealing with in school every single day she didn't understand that um the the issues i was facing in in going to a school that was um divided by 
every single floor that uh, of the school is divided by ethnic groups or gangs, etc. She didn't understand the uh, um, how I was treated by security guards. She didn't understand how I was treated by certain teachers. So when I explained to my mother that how much I hated school, she didn't understand. She she didn't want to hear it. There was no conversation. It was you're going to school and that's the end of it. And she she never understood how I felt. Um, as far as the teachers and the principals and those relationships with my mother, my, any anything that the the principals or the teachers said to my mom were facts, and it was never questioned. That's pretty much it. We said at the beginning we, well, said I, we were going to talk about education and, and go ahead, looking Elena, at sorry. that, of course, from the perspective of the neighborhood and the and the parents and what was available or what is available to the students today. I think that a number of people listening to our conversation now might think that one of the main reasons that the neighborhood has changed so dramatically is because the population in the neighborhood is so very different from the population that was there in the 1960s. The actual people that are living there are immigrants today, um, perhaps Arthur? Were they also? Was it mostly an immigrant neighborhood back when you were growing up? There were a lot of immigrants, a lower proportion of immigrants. But Laura really hit upon what changed. The United States changed when we moved from an industrial to an information economy. There were jobs in an industrial economy in which you didn't have to be a high school graduate to support a family; you could make enough money. We had factory jobs. We had jobs in the post office. My father was a mailman, even though he hadn't finished high school. Well, those jobs are disappearing. They're going abroad. And what we have now are jobs for those who've dropped out of school, which are still service jobs, but you can't support a family flipping burgers at McDonald's. What's happened is for the jobs that pay an adequate income, the educational requirements have gone sky high. Uh, we're asking of kids to win, to earn a high school diploma today for the highest levels of skills and knowledge ever required historically. And so what it means is that for this population, which is poor, it's not about their color, it's not about their ethnicity, it's about poverty. We would find the same things that I've seen in my old neighborhood in white neighborhoods in which people came from Eastern Europe. It's simply a fact that low income makes um, it very, very hard to succeed in this society. If I can just add to what Arthur said, too, that in, in the 1960s, let's say if you had a, a, if you were working in a factory, for example, and had a minimum wage job, a minimum wage job the buying power of a minimum wage job was higher in the 1960s compared to today. So that if you have a minimum wage job today, it doesn't, the buck doesn't stretch as far as it did. And what's happened is in that neighborhood, whereas there were jobs when I was growing up, those industries have left. Those jobs are not available anymore, which necessitates the long travel. Beyond that, what's true is that it's a world in which people are facing much higher climbs to get out of the neighborhood. It's also a world which is disconnected by language, by poverty, by location for the middle class in America. 
and therefore is much more isolated. If I can just add to what Arthur said in talking about uh, the fact that industries are, are, are uh, in the neighborhood went down. In 1959, there were 2,000 manufacturers in the South Bronx. And 15 years later, there were 650. So that's 18,000 jobs that were lost. And that, of course, goes to what Arthur, what you were saying, that many of the jobs have been offshored and many of the opportunities that were available for the youth in the neighborhood 20 years ago have disappeared. Yes. Jobs that if you didn't speak English, that you could still get a decent job if you didn't speak English or so if you didn't have a high level looking education. at this and saying, well, okay, maybe what has happened in this neighborhood in the South Bronx is not unique. Maybe this is happening in other parts of the country. Is there evidence that that's the case? Have you looked at any other neighborhoods in New York or anywhere else in the country that lead us, to, that might lead you to believe, lead us to believe that this is not a unique situation? Yes. Years ago, I moved into a low-income housing project. I was president of a small college in Massachusetts. And I moved into a housing project in Lawrence, Massachusetts, which at the time was the 19th poorest city in the United States. What I've just described, it could have been Lawrence that I was describing. If you all look at the demographics and the numbers in terms of census data, it shows the same phenomenon in other neighborhoods. After 25 years of a school reform movement, which, we've been, which has been going on in this country, we are yet to turn around any urban district in the United States which are predominantly attended by kids of color who most often are poor. How, Juan Carlos, were you able to break out of that cycle that is the norm in the neighborhood? What did you do different? What was different in your life? Well, there was many factors to uh, um, to, to my story of change, so to say. Um, if, if you remember, when I first um, started talking about my my parents earlier, I told you that my for my mom and my dad, they were very um have very strict parents, and you know they they were very excellent examples. And while my mom was almost ready to quit at me at one point, when I when I remember one day um. She, she, I heard her talking on the phone with one of my relatives in the Dominican Republic, and she said, "This boy is completely out of control. I think I'm just going to tell him that he's going on a vacation to the R, and I'm going to leave him over there for a while because I don't know what to do with him over here." And I overheard this conversation. And the next day, I walked. I was walking in um, Roosevelt, and I saw this program, which was the Outward Bound program. And what I thought the Outward Bound program was just pretty much just a scouting trip for two weeks, and. I, I, since junior high school, I wanted to go um, on uh, scouting, and I, my mom could never afford to send me. And this was free, and I said, and my mom, when she came to me and said, oh, I'm going to buy you a ticket to the yard, like, if it was a vacation, I said, oh, I don't think I want to go to the yard this year. I want to go to this scouting trip that's free. Um, she didn't know that I heard this, had heard this conversation. Um, that was one of the moments where I, I started to tell myself, it's it's time for a change. And I went on this outward bound trip, and what this outward bound trip ended up being was a life um, educational experience. I, I I saw I I learned how to appreciate the 
the the the luxuries Urban Life gave me. Um, I I had um what was called a 24-hour solo, where I I, I analyzed the uh, the path that I was headed. Already at this time, I had um I had lost my friend um Dice, had been killed already. Um, there was a major um drug dealer in the neighborhood that was killed. Um, with who who was left pretty much with a on a closed casket, and I had friends that were already in jail, numerous amounts. Um, and I, I just, I just knew that I had to do something and I couldn't keep letting my parents down. Um, when I got back, I remember speaking to, um, to Arthur and I remember saying, listen, if I stay in Roosevelt, I'm not going to change. I want to change, but I'm not because I had this thought before. My, the first high school I went to was Martin Luther King where I was, um, kicked out of there for this, um, I was expelled for a conflict that I had with a security guard, a physical conflict. I had, and I was cutting in, uh, cutting classes at Martin Luther King and I was cutting classes at Roosevelt. But when I first came to Roosevelt, my mindset was that, okay, it's a new school, it's a fresh start, I want to change. But I bumped into all my friends in the neighborhood and I bumped into the same issues that I was bumping into Martin Luther King. Security guards um, being disrespectful, teachers not caring, metal detectors, etc. So I told Arthur, I was like, if I stay at Roosevelt, if I stay with my crowd, I am not going to make it. And I remember he said, well, why don't you go um, interview at the Heritage School and see how that goes. When I got to the Heritage School, which is a school in, um, in Harlem, 106th Street and Lexington Avenue, um, I remember interviewing with Peter Dillon, who was at the time the assistant principal, and I told him my story. I said, listen, I'm, I, I'm coming here with only one educational credit for my freshman year, but I have the will to change. Um, I, I would like a, a shot here. I would like a second chance. And Peter Dillon said, some words to me that I will never forget. He said to me, Juan Carlos, in life, sometimes people need a second chance. But then also in life, some people need a third chance, a fourth chance. Sometimes they even need a fifth chance. And I'm going to give you that chance. And that made a difference in the world to me. Here I was sitting, a 14-year-old, ready to go in life, um, disappointing my parents, headed in a completely negative path, and this principal looks at me and says, you deserve a second chance, you deserve a third chance, you deserve a fourth chance, and I believe in you. And from that moment, I decided that I was going to be successful. Heritage was a completely a complete 360 on environments from what I had at um, Roosevelt and Martin Luther King. It was a very small school. Um, the total amount of students was four, about 400 students tops. My um, so you're talking about a, at about a hundred incoming freshmen per year. My graduating class was only um, 40 students, so we were very small. We had um, a lot of one-on-one -on -one attention with the teachers, and I, I grew close to adult figures. For the you know, besides um, junior high school, I had one one teacher that I was very close to. I never had a teacher who I was who I looked at as as figures. But at, um, at Heritage, I bumped into a numerous amount of, of mentors. For one, my um, global history teacher, Mr. Carr, was a very um, fluent lecturer who brought history alive for me. Prior to, to, 
taking classes with her. I hated history. I'm a political science major now, so she made me love that. She made me um, understand history, and 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 she she had this um, um, method of reverse psychology of of speaking to me and and encouraging me. Um, I had Mr. Saltz, who was an awesome English teacher. He's the person that introduced me to to the college world. I never thought about college, even when I was thinking about graduating. My idea at the time was, well, I'm going to graduate high school and I'm going to go be a doorman or I'm going to do something along those lines and that's it. College was not an option. I was sick at school. I, I never thought about it. Um, Mr. Saltz took us on, on on college trips. He took us to Vassar College, I remember, and I remember seeing a whole world that I didn't know existed and he got me excited for it. He also um, taught in a very... Um, in a very comparative way to college, he gave us syllabus and he he just treated us as sort of as young adults and we respect. Same thing with another history teacher that I had, Mr. Um, Mr. Nichols, like um, just gave me one-on-one attention and really believed that I could change. But I would say the most influential person and the person that kept me in the right path when I wanted a to sort of get away was um my martial arts instructor Rocky Rivera. Rocky Rivera is um a a um master in three different styles of martial arts and she she thought martial she she was my gym teacher pretty much. But more than gym teacher she became a friend and a and a great mentor. She um was able to relate to me. She grew up um in East New York, a, a very rough side of town in New York and and she knew how she knew what I dealt with in the neighborhood she knew the issue of respect she knew what that meant to me um she also saw in me a very bright and um and she saw poten- a, a potential yeah it, she saw she saw my potential to success she never belittled me she never she never disrespected me but through tough love she kept me in the right path i remember because, you know, change doesn't happen from night to morning. Even at, at Heritage, you know, at the beginning, it was just sort of a a, um, a struggling path. Uh, I remember cutting class one day in the computer lab, and she came out, and she saw me cutting and said, oh, got to get to class. When I got to um, martial arts that afternoon, because I learned to love martial arts, she said, no, you're not doing class today. You're going to go to the back and do 500 push-ups. And that's, and, and that's the relationship that we had. After the 500 push-ups, however, she came and gave me a hug and said, listen, I'm not going to let you go. You're going to make it. And having that just made the difference in the world. Um, being involved in martial arts kept me busy enough that I, ha- I didn't have to hang out in the neighborhood. What ended up happening was that I, I signed up for night school. I signed up for PM school. I signed up for summer school. And I got to Heritage sophomore year. With one credit, I graduated what was supposed to be my senior year on time, meaning I did four years' work in three years. And from there, it's just history. Um, from there, I got into um, Mount St. Mary College through this program called um, the Higher Educational Opportunity Program. The way I got to um, Mount St. Mary's was um, that I used to go to college counseling in the center by Heritage, which was called the Harlem Center of Education. 
where I had another great mentor there who was Cheryl Keys, and just she helped um, helped me understand the whole college process. Again, she took me to many college visits. She taught me what the facts of form were. She um, she taught me that it was affordable for me to go to school and that there were programs out there that could get me there. Introduced me to the Higher Educational Opportunity Program. I interviewed at Mount St. Mary College where um, Rosanna Reyes Rosello was the um, director of the HEOP program. She again reflected um, upon my story and she gave me a chance. Um, I got accepted to a four-year school with a 68 average, which is not typical for high school students. Usually we end up going to a junior college, but Rosanna gave me that shot, Rosanna and the HEOP staff. From there, I uh, we with the the way the HEOP program worked, with the, I had to sign up as two days after high school graduation. I packed my bags and headed to Newburgh, where Mount St. Mary College is located. And I was I signed up for a six week intensive um, academic prep. I excelled, and I I went to Mount St. Mary's for two years, where I was um, president of my class both years that I was there. Eventually, because of several personal reasons and um, I just sort of missed the city. I ended up moving back to New York City where I went to Baruch College. Now I am one class away from graduation, which actually I am one exam away from graduation. I, I, all I have to take is my final exam and I'm officially a, a college graduate and that's my story. I work now at um, the president's office here at Teachers College and I hope to pursue a master's in public administration or law school. I haven't quite um, made up my mind yet, but what one time, well, stepping back. First, I didn't want to go to school because of the relationships that I had there and all the negativity and the path that I was taking. Then I decided to go to high school and my goal is, okay, just graduate high school and that's it. I get some intervention and College gets banged into my head and it starts becoming realistic. Now, college is almost over and I, I am leaning towards getting a, a graduate education. All of this gets done because of mentors and people that cared and people that knew the situation that I was in. And they knew they had to keep me busy. They knew they had to keep me away from the neighborhood because one minute lost in school is what well, was a minute gained of, of hanging out and, and that minute could have been detrimental. Now I, I'm, I'm here. And that's my story. By the way, I knew the world had changed when I, I resigned as president of Teachers College to take another job. And the person I had to turn my keys over to before I left was this person who had been hired by another office, not by me. And his name was Juan Carlos Reyes. So when I left Teachers College, he was the person who I turned over all the remnants I had left at the office, and I knew, my God, things have changed over these years. <laughs> so what are the lessons you, Arthur, and Laura have spent uh, a great deal of time bonding with some of the people in the neighborhood, and you talk about that at length in the book, and where you explore how the neighborhood has changed and you get to know some of the people in the neighborhood who let you into their lives and, of course, Juan Carlos as well. What are the lessons learned from these changes 
and how can they help us if we look at the national picture? What's happening to the country isn't just happening in that four block radius, but as you said earlier, it may be affecting other areas of the country. What have you learned and how can we apply that? How can we take that lesson and make it into something good? Two points I'd make, but I'd tell a quick story first. Once upon a time, I was driving down a highway with my family, and off to the side of the road were all these cars that had crashed into each other. And I thought as I drove, how could they have been so sloppy in their driving as not to have noticed this pileup? At that moment, I hit the same slick every other car had hit, and I traveled across three lanes of the highway and crashed into that pile. Every neighborhood has a slick. Mine led to the middle class. The slick in my old neighborhood now lead to little education, poverty, and frequently violence. The things that we learned from our study are really three. One is kids can make it. Most kids can make it. The second is All it takes is one arm around one child for the most part. It's not all children, but it's most children. In the course of our work in my old neighborhood, one of the three boys who we had spent time with was named Leo. Leo was shot and killed by the police, which was um, very sad. But the other two boys, Carlos and Juan Carlos, both made it, and it took the arm that Juan Carlos had described. He had lots of arms, but most kids only need one. And this, the last thing that we learned was there are programs that focus on whole neighborhoods and whole schools and have extraordinary success rates. The answer is we know what to do as a nation. The only question is do we have the will to save those children? And I would, if I can just build off of what Arthur said, I, I, our lessons learned are exactly the same. When you look at Carlos and Juan Carlos who made it, and Leo who died in a very violent way and way too young, the question isn't why did Leo not make it, considering the environment in which they all grew up. They all grew up in the same environment that put them on a track to fail. The question is, How is it that Juan Carlos and Carlos made it out? How is it that they became one of the 13% of Hispanics in the United States that are going to graduate from college? And what we saw is despite the fact that they grew up in the same oppressive neighborhood, Carlos and Juan Carlos had a set of assets that allowed them to get out. And Juan Carlos, I think, did a beautiful job describing his trajectory, what happened in his life. And just to highlight some of those points, that we talked about a network of mentors being held accountable for his actions, having higher expectations, and then holding him to those higher expectations, providing him the right amount of support, the necessary support to realize his dreams, actually to augment his dreams and to make those dreams happen and go to college. So it meant when he did decide he, college was for him, he was offered the support to understand the whole college system. He was offered their support to help fill out applications for college, 
what do, what financial aid is available? What do you have to do to, when you're in a college interview, et cetera, et cetera? And this support continued not just in high school, but he also had support while or throughout college. And we think that the lessons that we learn from Carlos and Juan Carlos can be translated into practice, into policy, into educational initiatives that can help thousands of kids. And what we're talking about here are comprehensive, integrated programs where it's not where it's one arm around each child, but it's also that idea of a village raising a child, that there's a number of mentors and a safety network that's created in order to make sure that kids develop in all areas so that they're, we're not just talking about their educational success, but also their socio-emotional development to make sure that their issues such as um, that their health, their mental and physical health is taken care of for, for healthy growth. And we're talking about building a coalition of stakeholders who's invested in, the, in our future, our kids who are our future. And the other thing that I just would like to build off of what Arthur said is that there are programs out there that have taken these lessons and turned them into practice, things like the Harlem's Children's Zone, Say Yes to Education, I Have a Dream. These are all programs that are very different, but they're focused on healthy development of kids and higher educational attainment. And what these programs and others like them have shown us is that when we invest in kids and when we take these lessons that we learned and convert them into practice, we know what we have to do in order to save kids today or to give kids a real opportunity to realize their dreams. We know what we have to do. We just need to commit and invest in the kids that they deserve They deserve to have a chance to realize their dreams. By the way, one of the things, also every one of those programs focuses on parents as well. The thing I'd note, though, is that we don't have a choice of whether we deal with the kids or not. We have two different policy choices. One is we can wait until they're broken, in which case we will provide them with social welfare programs, prisons, and other kinds of activities that are going to be quite costly and they won't pay taxes. Or we can intervene when kids are young and make a difference in their lives and what the research shows is it costs much less to do it at the front end of their lives than to wait. It ends up being a decision that's not only a moral decision, it's also a decision that makes dollars and cents. If I understand correctly, what you're saying is that for our listeners, even if they themselves are not familiar with living in or exposed to these kinds of neighborhoods, this is something that they should care about because of the consequences and impact that it has on country overall and the cities and the population in general, and that dealing with it early on is a much better approach than dealing with the consequences. You bet. Right. And if I can just add one more thing, um, I think it's also, you know, a lot of times people think, well, what can I do? How can I, 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 I Arthur, I'm sure you've experienced this as well, where you have, you meet lots of people that are inter- that want to make a difference in kids' lives and want to make a, contribute to positive change, but they don't know how. 
And I think there's numerous ways, and I feel free, Juan Carlos or Arthur, mm-hmm. to, to jump in, but I think there's definitely numerous ways that that can happen. Um, for example, for we talked before about, we, we highlighted these programs that have proven to make a difference in kids' lives, that they're, they use practices and programs that are showing significant results. And a lot of these programs that we focus on or that we studied are they're nonprofit programs, and they rely very much on the support of, uh, of businesses or private sector support. And without that support, these very effective programs wouldn't exist. They would fall apart. So there's, fin- there's ways that people can contribute financially. There's volunteer work or there's giving, uh, you know, con- whether it's uh, tutoring or becoming a mentor. There's a lot of mentorship programs that are very effective. That idea of one arm around one child is it has proven to be a very effective way of making change in a child's life. And then there's also investing in neighborhoods so that... Arthur talked before that in the neighborhood that he grew up, a lot of businesses left. We talked throughout this hour that, that there was a, um, when there was white flight, you also had fleeing of businesses. And this really had a, a huge impact on the, the financial aspect of the neighborhood. And so what definitely needs to happen as well is we need to get businesses to invest back in the neighborhoods that have been historically disadvantaged, have been socially isolated and economically isolated. And we need to start creating jobs within the neighborhoods. I don't know if Juan Carlos or Arthur, you want to add? Well, if if I could just word it and say say one last thing. I think that it's it's a shame that as as, as a country, um, the resources available for kids like me when I was growing up as far as education in the neighborhood, uh, as far as education and the resources for the neighborhood for after-school programs, etc., it's based on a zip code. It's based on that radius that we were born in. I think that education is a right. I think that um, it, it's definitely something that needs to be more equitable. And not, I shouldn't have to have a poor education because I was born with little resources. And until we don't see that as a priority in our nations, Crescent Avenue is going to remain the same. But I know not only Crescent Avenue, but every neighborhood all around the United States. Until we start caring about these neighborhoods, there won't be any change. And I think our, our book vividly highlights it. And I think my story vividly highlights the fact that when people do care, um, success is possible. It just needs to be, my story needs to be made global. And that's it. The, let me just try to summarize what both Juan Carlos and Laura just said. There's something fundamentally immoral. We ought to be ashamed. We ought to be embarrassed. If children are denied a future on the day in which they're born, based upon the color of their parents' skin or their income level. It's wrong. If a business person decides that he or she would like to change this, Laura laid out a whole series of paths. One path is there are organizations in every community that need help. There are kids who need tutoring. There are organized programs. 
If a person has only time to give, give the time there. If a person has a staff, give some of the staff release time from work to go tutor. It's an extraordinary investment. Second thing is, if a person doesn't have time, money really matters. And I don't believe in throwing money at problems. I don't think that solves them. But I do believe in making investments. There are organizations that we know work, and Laura named three of them. Give investments to those kinds of organizations makes a difference. It's one that requires some research, find the right organization, and provide the money. Find an organization that's spending its money on kids, not on its administration operations. There's also the prospect. Create a Harlem Children's Zone in whatever city you live. Bring a chapter of Say Yes to whatever city in which you live. Create an I Have a Dream program in any city in which you live. All of those things are doable. One person can do them or a coalition of business people. There is no city in the United States that doesn't have a chamber of commerce. The chamber can be a major player in making this happen. But I think the most philanthropic effort one could make, the greatest gift one could give, is moving a business into an area. To create a factory in a poor neighborhood would be an extraordinary thing to do. Moreover, there are government subsidies for doing it. To create a factory, to adopt a school with that factory, to provide internships for children, to provide training programs, could be a superb investment and one that would allow somebody to look in the mirror the next day and feel very proud. What three tips would you share in closing with our listeners who want to make a difference in their community or who want to learn from the lessons that you've learned as, as business people, as parents, as perhaps Hispanics and Latinos? What three suggestions would you share with them briefly? I have two off the top of my head that build off of what both Juan Carlos and Arthur have already talked about. Um, so building off of what Arthur said, I think another thing that would just make a huge difference is giving kids that have come from disadvantaged backgrounds a chance, an opportunity. And what that means is, for example, if you're a business owner, an executive, a CEO, offer opportunities for, as Arthur said, internships, growth, and opportun- professional opportunities. Um, something that I think that that we learned is how important it is to have social capital or social networks, not just certainly within the neighborhood, it's absolutely important to have that safety network, but also having connections and networks outside of the neighborhood that will open up opportunities. In this case, I'm talking about social mobility opportunities, so that if you get, uh, give a child the chance that potentially perhaps has been disadvantaged in the past and getting on a professional trajectory. Give that child the chance. I think this is something I, I believe very strongly in. Um, the other thing, I'm not sure if it's it's uh, quick three points, but I also just want to build off of what Juan Carlos and Arthur were saying, that when we talk about things like high school dropout rates and high crime and unemployment rates, et cetera, et cetera, and gang problems, 
these actually, and we think that these are the problems of the neighborhood, the problems of society. In my opinion, these are actually the symptoms of social problems. And if we really want to make transformative change, we need to get to the roots of social problems, which is addressing institutional racism or social isolation. This stuff is going to take a long time. It's absolutely necessary. We have to address it if we really want to make change. In the meantime, in the immediate, so that we don't lose any more layers of the world because we're losing thousands of kids a year, we need to invest immediately in kids. Um, and it's kind of just what Arthur talked about before, one arm around one child at a time, but creating a network people to help raise a child. That mentality of a village, it takes a village to raise a child. So I leave with one concrete suggestion and one larger vision for transformative change for Thank the Thank you, Arthur, Juan Carlos, and Laura for joining us from New York I, City. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Arthur Levine, who is president of the Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship Foundation, Juan Carlos Reyes, who is executive assistant to the president at Teachers College, and Laura Scheiber, a doctoral student in comparative and international education at Teachers College at Columbia University. Today we discussed education and opportunities in a changing neighborhood and their book, Unequal Fortunes, Snapshots from the South Bronx.